Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of No Pollution of Cowardice, South Jersey in the Civil War. I'm your host, Dan Casella, and today I'm going to read you Private Benjamin Borton's account of the Battle of Fredericksburg. Private Benjamin Borton of Woodstown, New Jersey, will recall in his post-war book, On the Perils, or Chapters of Inner History, a story of the Rappahannock. He would write about his experience with the 24th New Jersey Volunteers, and upon enlistment in the 24th, the men were told that they would never see the front and stay within the defenses of Washington. However, the 24th would be attached to Nathan Kimball's brigade and would be one of the first brigades to attack Murray's Heights. The 24th would have fellow Jerseymen of the 28th Regiment on their left and loyal Virginians on their right. General Kimball would ride in front of the Garden Staters and remind them, quote, you are Jerseymen, before they'd stepped off. The rest would be told by Borton's words, so without further ado, I will read to you Benjamin Borton's account of the Battle of Fredericksburg. Next morning, December 13th, the city was enveloped in a heavy fog, which did not lift, if my recollection is clear, until ten o'clock or later. As far as we could see in either direction stood a continuous line of soldiers in readiness to start to the field of action. Mounted officers and orderlies were continually passing back and forth along the lines, while some of the regimental officers and privates, tired of standing in the ranks, dropped out and sought a seat upon the curb or a nearby doorstep. Among those who had taken a resting place was a surgeon, upon whose face I noticed was depicted an intense feeling of sadness. Perhaps he could not help it, for we all knew that some of us would be soon badly wounded, if not instantly killed. Yet this solemn fact did not make all men gloomy. The most lively of fellows mimicked the whizzing noise of an occasional round shot or shell in its arched flight over the housetops or cracked jokes with their comrades. Presently is heard the command, Attention! Every lounger springs to his place. We are ordered to prime. Every musket is raised and every man caps his piece. Our colonel made some remarks, telling us to shoot low and try to wound a man in preference to killing him. Noticing a red-colored scarf about my neck, he ordered me to take it off, saying it would make a good target for the enemy. The scarf disappeared. Suspense is intense. Finally, the long-expecting, much-dreaded command, Forward! is passed from officer to officer standing at the head of their companies. With an ominous silence akin to a funeral procession, General Kimball began the perilous march down Caroline Street. Reaching what I will call Railroad Avenue, the column filed to the right and out that thoroughfare to begin the attack. I think I am telling the plain truth when I say that during this short march many of those silently offered up to the Almighty their last prayer on earth. Our regiment was about to receive its baptism of fire, and everyone knew it. Shells and solid shot from the enemy's heavy guns now came crashing through brick walls and pounded the street about us. The first wounded man I saw hurrying down the sidewalk with one hand pressed upon his breast, inquiring for a hospital. At the edge of town, we passed General Kimball facing us in his saddle, who addressed his men with these words, which I will never forget. Cheer up, me hearties, cheer up. This is something we must all get used to. Remember, this brigade has never been whipped, and don't let it be whipped today. No wild hurrah went up in response. Every face wore an expression of seriousness and dread. A few steps further, and we were out of the town in open fields in full view of the enemy. While the brigade is coming into position at double quick, 
the assault of the Confederate fortifications around Murray's Heights, the artillerymen on the summit are turning their guns upon us, and with effect. To facilitate our progress in the charge, haversacks and blankets are now thrown away. The company commanders shout sharply to their men to keep the regiments in line as they advance to the attack. Screeching like demons in the air, solid shot, shrapnel, and shells from the batteries on the hills strike the ground in front of us, behind us, and cut gaps into the ranks. See there! A field officer has been struck by one of the missiles, and a couple of men have raised him to his feet, calling loudly for more help to get him off the field. As the line advanced up the slope, men wounded and dead dropped from the ranks. It is not every man that can face danger like this. I saw few so overcome by fear that they fell prostrate upon the ground as if dead. I have seen men drop to their knees and pray loudly for deliverance when courage and bravery, not supplication, was the duty of the moment. Hark! There is one of my comrades, Johnny Bayerton, praying too, perhaps for the first time in his life. It was a short one. Oh, Lord! Dear God, Lord! he cried. But Johnny at this trying moment was a brave as he was devout and kept his place in the front rank. Not a gun was fired until the brigade reached the crest of the hill when, like a burst of thunder, the roar of musketry became almost deafening. It seemed to me every soldier after firing his piece had thrown himself upon the ground to avoid the enemy's bullets, and I did not see how I could possibly load and fire by lying down in that crouching column of men. To stand up boldly along the firing line, the dead line, was almost certain death, so I ran to a blacksmith's shop some distance to my right, where, with a number of other soldiers who had taken refuge there, we banged away at the rebels, but they were so securely and safely entrenched behind the great stone wall that I believe every man in the firing line felt that there was no hope of victory. A little frame building from which we were firing was by no means bulletproof, yet we felt much safer than standing in full view of the enemy. Down goes one of our party, shot through the head. I know not for what reason, but I stopped firing for a few moments and stood over the lifeless form of the unknown soldier with a sort of fascination, wondering who he could be, wondering what mother's boy had been added to the role of the dead. "'Here they come!' someone shouted, and looking back towards the city we saw another line of reinforcements charging up the slope. Blustly they were cheered as they advanced, and I noticed a wounded man sitting upon the ground waving his cap and cheering with the rest." Until nightfall, brigade after brigade charged across the field of death to the deadline, only to suffer disaster and defeat. I see a regiment charging up the slope towards the stone wall opposite the Stevens house, a large white dog capering and leaping ahead of the column. My eyes follow another brigade advancing across the plain. They are veterans. The line keeps well dressed, but the men are bending as low as they can travel, and the color bearer trailing his flags upon the ground. Those heroic men trying to avoid the Confederate bullets, but many in the ranks never took part of another fight. Here comes a regiment charging directly towards us, advancing as orderly as if on dress parade. The cool conduct of their colonel attracted the attention of a few, and some cried out, That's the way for a colonel to bring on his men. Some boys were jolly and laughing when they passed us, in closed column, by the blacksmith shop, out of sight. See, some of them are already returning, I mean those that are wounded. To secure shelter along us in front of the building, two stalwart fellows came around the corner dragging their dying colonel riddled with bullets. That regiment must have been literally cut to pieces. A bullet crashed through the shop, throwing a splinter into the face of a man standing near. 
he cursed in hot anger and left the spot. From the blacksmith shop, I hurriedly returned to, along the firing line to the red brick house, which near we had opened fire in the assault. General Kimball's brigade held its position at the firing line until relieved, but even then the men could not safely retire. The only alternative was to lie at full length upon the ground, skulk into or behind neighboring buildings, or at much greater risk of being shot down, withdrawal to the rear. While at the brick house, looking around about me upon the awful scene of carnage, a bullet grazed my head. I watched a brigade charge up the slope close to our left, but the brave men, unable to withstand the withering fire, soon fell back in disorder. Followed by soldiers who had been at the deadline since the start, I watched a brigade charge up the slope close to our left, but the brave men, unable to withstand the withering fire, soon fell back in disorder followed by soldiers who had been at the deadline since the first attack by Kimball's men. With a number of others in the mixed throng collected in front of the brick building, the writer withdrew from the field. All the way down the slope to the edge of the town, I saw my fellow soldiers dropping on every side. In their effort to get out of the reach of the murderous fire from the Confederate infantry securely entrenched behind the long stone wall and the batteries on the heights, I saw a shell explode close to the heels of a large man fleeing for his life. He was blown clean from the ground, falling in a heap, frightfully mangled. A little further on, another unfortunate fellow was lying on the ground in a violent death struggle. At the edge of town, two men were helping off the field badly wounded comrades, who was cursing in a frenzy of anger and vowing vengeance upon the rebels. A couple of stretcher carriers were carrying to a hospital a man with both legs shot away. It was a sickening sight. Scenes such I have described made a lasting impression upon my memory. Borton and his comrades in the 24th would again see action for their final time at the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863. The regiment would be mustered out June 29th, and that would be the end of his service. Borton would live until 1912 when he passes away in Philadelphia at the age of 70. He is, however, buried in the Friends Cemetery in Woodstown, New Jersey, where you can visit him to this day. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of No Pollution of Cowardice, South Jersey in the Civil War. I did this one for the 160th anniversary of Fredericksburg, which is coming up soon. So I hope you enjoyed this. If you are listening on Spotify, um, a subscription would be amazing. Uh, it really helps get me out there to, uh, you know, a bigger audience. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. Cheers. <laughs>